It's something for nothing. The Rush Fan Cast. Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, how are you in this evening? I'm well. How are you, Steve? I'm good. I'm good. You know, I was thinking we're gushing quite a bit about Clockwork Angels. Almost too much, don't you think? No. No? I don't think. No, not at all. I was thinking maybe we're too biased. We're too close to it. No. To be qualified to, to talk about this. Well, qualified, Steve. <laughs> we're not not qualified to talk about it at all. We weren't qualified to do 100 episodes of a Rush podcast. No, not at all. But we're doing it. We're doing it anyway. No, I think it's it's a, such a fantastic album. I mean, it's like gushing over permanent waves or gushing over moving pictures or, you know what I mean? How can you gush? It's great. Or gushing over Lex's bass lines. <laughs> yes. Which are amazing. And he did another one for today's podcast. Thank you, Lex. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast Instagram. You can find us at the Rushcast. Email Jerry, therushcast at gmail.com. Subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast app. And Jerry, as we mentioned, we're deep in Clockwork Angels. The second half of the album starts on this podcast. Yeah, we're we're knee deep in Clockwork Angels. Knee deep in the hoopla. <laughs> what is that? What is that? Is that who is that? Is that that's from the worst song ever. We Built This City by Jefferson Starship. (laughs) Knee Deep in the Hoopla. Oh, it's the worst. (laughs) Is that the name of the album, Knee Deep in the Hoopla? Or is it just a line from the song? I'm happy to say I don't know the name of the album. Oh, okay. I'm embarrassed that I even knew a line from it. I don't even remember that line being in there. Knee Deep in the Hoopla. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So you (laughs) you got an email for us, Jared, to get us started here? I do. It's from our friend uh, Vicky Flyer Hudson. Oh, Vicky. Nice of Vicky to check in. Yes. She says, hi, Jerry, because she sent it to me. Oh, you know, I forgot to mention, I went out to the first show of her band, The Spirit of Rush, the beginning of August. We should talk about that. Read the email first, and then we'll talk about that. Okay. Um, so she references that. She says, I hope all is well with you. I still think about how much fun it was to have you at our show. The video should be ready soon. You rocked that triangle. I posted a video of me playing the triangle during Hemispheres. Well, I guess we should talk about it now then. Let's talk about it now. They played Hemispheres in its entirety, correct? Yes. And when we had Vicky on, we had the idea that you should play the triangle. Right. As this was off air, we talked about right. it. Right. We didn't talk about it on the podcast, but we had this brilliant idea that you would play the triangle. Right. And as all Rush fans know, there's one triangle hit. In the whole song. Right. Possibly the only triangle hit in any Rush song. Maybe. But I thought you should do it Andy Kaufman style and just stand there just stone-faced. No one knew who you were. No one would know what you were going to do. And then when the triangle part came, you just wind up and ding. <laughs> but you didn't do it that way. No, I didn't do it that way. I played it straight, Steve. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a professional triangler. There you go. So, yeah, so I got up on stage. I introduced the band at the beginning, and then Vicky gave me a triangle, which I had at my seat for like the entire show. And then when Hemisphere started, you know, I went up to the side of the stage. And then during the, the part where the triangle comes in, I get up on stage and I dinged that triangle and walked off stage. It was great. I have to say, you nailed it. I saw the video. We'll post it on Twitter and Instagram one more time so everyone can see it. Yeah. That was quite a performance, Jer. Thank you very much. I'm very proud of it. You should be. I practiced not at all, <laughs> which is not true. I guess I've been practicing that, that triangle hit 
since I first heard Hemispheres, I think, you know what I mean? Oh yeah. Every time I listen to it in the car, I do it. <laughs> yeah. Steering wheel. Yeah. Someone's thigh. It doesn't matter. Whatever's handy. So back to the email. Back to the email. She says, I've been wanting to send this email for a while, but it seemed especially appropriate on Alex's birthday today. Oh yeah. Today's Alex's birthday. Oh, We're yes. recording this on Alex's birthday. Yes. Which is a couple of weeks prior to when you'll hear this. Right. You meaning the listener. Yes. Uh, for many years, I have been hearing people say that Alex is underrated or underappreciated. I've heard several guests on the podcast say it, and many of my Rush fan friends. These phrases have always bothered me, but up until recently, I wasn't sure why. And here's what I discovered. Ooh. While there may have been a time when critics in particular downplayed Alex's talent, I think that time has long passed. Even during those times, Alex appeared frequently in guitar magazines and at the top of readers' polls for best guitarist. In my experience, fans have always appreciated his incredible solos, his inventive rhythms, and his creativity. Personally, he is my musical hero of all time. As time has gone by and Rush gained more critical acclaim and an even wider fan base, the term underappreciated holds even less weight. In my opinion, at this point, I think we all say he's underrated because that's the narrative that's always been there. It's like our evidence for the narrative is the narrative itself. Huh. So... That's a great point. Yeah. I believe it's time to end this storyline of him being underappreciated and get on with the business of just appreciating him. Now, one might argue that saying he's underappreciated is a form of appreciation, but I feel that repeating that old worn out line takes away from what could be a more pure form of admiration for his musical contributions. Honestly, I don't know one Rush fan that doesn't appreciate Alex as much as the other two guys. And while Alex is known for serving the song, is also an incredibly technically proficient player. Our guitarist for the Spirit of Rush, Reese Boyd, can certainly attest to how difficult it is to play Alex's parts well. My wish is that we move forward from the narrative of underappreciated Alex and just talk about all that he brings to the table. Thanks again for all you do, and I look forward to meeting again one day. Very cool. Thanks, Vicky, for that email. Really appreciate it. Yeah. What do you think about that? I just have one more thing to say about it, though. I don't think when we say... He's underappreciated. We think he's underappreciated by Rush fans. I don't think that at all. No. I think Rush fans appreciate Alex just as much as they do Getty and Neil. I think it's just the general music fan that underappreciates Alex, even if they like Rush. Yeah. Everyone always says Eddie Van Halen is better or Jimi Hendrix is better. And they may be, but I think Alex is equal to them. Oh, yeah, I agree. I totally agree. But, you know, I think let's go with that. Let's just appreciate Alex. Why don't we start a club, the Alex Lifeson Appreciation Society? Sure, we'll start a Facebook group. Let's do it. Yeah, I'm not doing that, though. And while we're appreciating <laughs> Alex, we can start with track six on Clockwork Angels, Jer. Halo Effect.
Well, this is the perfect song, Jared, to start our Alex Lifeson Appreciation Society, I think. <laughs> Why is that? And I'll start with a quote from Alex. What do you think? Okay, sure. I think we were going in a different direction with Halo Effect. I remember we were in our little control room. We had three different rooms going at one time. I picked up an acoustic and started playing. Getty began mouthing the lyrics, and then something clicked. He started playing along, and we just developed the song from there. Now, this song, Jer, features strings that were arranged by Beck's father, who we've spoken about before. Yes. David Campbell. He was the conductor of the Clockwork Angels string ensemble, was he not? I believe he was, for the album, at least. And for the tour. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Forgot that part. And he arranged the strings on this song, too. Nick Raskulenix told Music Radar, we always knew we were going to put strings on the song. Alex wrote and played the demo strings on a keyboard. At first, we thought about using that, but then we decided to go for it and have a real string section. Yeah, it was another great decision. A lot of great decisions on this album, right? Oh, absolutely. And this is such a transitional song in the record. Yeah. And so beautiful. I love Alex's playing on the song. The thing that jumps out to me is that it's, it's a ballad, but it's a heavy ballad. Don't you think? Yeah. It's definitely not, uh, a, like a, like an eighties <laughs> heavy metal ballad though. It doesn't, it doesn't have that kind of ballad feel to it. Right. But it's got some oomph to it. Yeah, definitely. It's not just an acoustic guitar piece to me. Yeah, it's true. So your thoughts overall on this? Well, do you want to start by reading the little intro part to the song? I would love to. I'd fallen helplessly in love with one of the performers. She was so different from the girl I left behind, and I was beginning to understand I'd only pretended she was right for me. I pursued my beautiful acrobat obsessively until she let me be with her. Then I suffered her rejection and contempt. Once again, I'd created an ideal of the perfect soulmate and tried to graft it onto her. It didn't fit. Such illusions have colored my whole life. Now, here's where this song, or at least that, that description of this song, doesn't really fit in with the novel. It doesn't? No, because I, in, the, if I'm, in the novel, if I'm not mistaken, Owen falls in love with Francesca. Right. Is that her name? Yep, She's an acrobat, mm-hmm. right? And they spend the night together, and then he, like, asks her to move back to like Barrel Arbor with him. Right. Or something like that. And they get to like an argument or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he leaves because of that, because he thinks that she rejected him, but she didn't really reject him. When he comes back, you know, they have a conversation and she tells him that she wasn't rejecting him. She was just like, I want to stay in with the circus. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So like he does project a lot of things on her, but it's not as as uh, bad as it seems in here. Like she doesn't treat him with contempt or anything. Well, in his mind though, maybe she did. Oh, you think so? In his mind, he felt rejected because he thought she didn't want to be with him at all. Which she really just didn't want to go back to his apple orchard with him. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. So I think what we're hearing in these lyrics is what he feels at the moment, at the moment. Right. And in the moment of the story, not what actually turned out to be, which was later on in the book. Yeah, I guess you're right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think so. Shall we start with the lyrics? What do you think? Yeah, of course. What did I see? Fool that I was. 
a goddess with wings on her heels, all my illusions projected on her, the ideal that I wanted to see. And I have to say, Getty's vocals on this song are incredible. Yeah, they are. I don't see how anybody can say that Getty can't sing and listen to this song. Because you've, you've heard the complaints about Getty's voice over the years. In the early days. Even later, you know, people always say, oh, I hate Getty's voice. How can you hate his voice? Listen to this. Maybe they just haven't heard this song. I mean, where's well, the song Well, not just this played? song. There's so many Rush songs that he sings beautifully on, I think. Oh, I know. I, well, I totally agree. He totally wrings every ounce of emotion out of this song, mm-hmm. too. So your thoughts on that first set of lyrics, Jar? Well, I think it, it captures the idea of being in love with somebody, right? That you, mm-hmm. Especially someone you don't even know. Because he doesn't know her very much. He just sees her and immediately falls in love with her. So he just has this idea, the naive young man that he is, about what a relationship should be. Mm -hmm. And like he said, you know, he grafts that onto her. But it's also, uh, it's not just about her. It's about other songs too, even like the the Wreckers and and Seven Cities of Gold. He just has these ideas of what the world is going to be. And they don't always come true. Right. And I think I can relate to this a little bit because I remember when I was younger, if I met a, a girl, I would have these grand fantasies of, you know, how our lives would be together and all this stuff. <laughs> and it was stupid. You know, when you're young, you think about this stuff and, and you have to talk to the other person and find out what they want from their life too. You do? Yeah. It's not just what wow. you want, Jer. Not really? It's not just what Owen Hardy wants. It's what Francesca wants too. Or is it Francesca? I would say Francesca. Um, the thing is, too, he doesn't have enough experience to know that the stuff that he was brought up to believe still isn't true, right? Right. He still thinks that there is like a place for him. Like there is a place that has been created for him. Mm-hmm. It seems anyway, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, I, I, left, I left my hometown and I found this, this um, circus and I see this woman. Obviously, I'm destined to be with this woman. Right. Because, you know. That's the way it's going to be. All is for the best. All is for the best, right. He doesn't take into account, I don't know, some people don't subscribe to that at all. The watchmaker meant him to meet her. Right, exactly. Right? Which in a way, maybe, maybe he did. Like we find out later in the book that the anarchist is the one who got him onto the, mm-hmm. the ship, the airship, and that the watchmaker and the anarchist have kind of been using him to each to prove their point. Right. So he is kind of being conducted by these other people. He's betwixt and between. Yeah, I guess he is. So it goes on, what did I know? Fool that I was. Little by little, I learned. My friends were dismayed to see me betrayed, but they knew they could never tell me. Now his friends, are those the other people in the uh, circus? Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe that's really where I had it. I felt it differed from the novel a little bit, which is understandable since the novel was written after. Right. After the lyrics were written. Because he left right away. Right. He doesn't hang around and talk to his friends about it. Mm-hmm. But I could be wrong. Yeah, well, and the other thing is when he goes away, he doesn't have any friends to tell about it anyway. Right, exactly. Hmm. But, you know, he is also, you know, he sounds like a real sad sack here, right? Sure. <laughs> you got his... 
he's got his heart stepped on a little bit and he just runs away and it's just like, what a fool I was to care about somebody. Oh, he sounds like, you know, he just needs to grow up a little bit as a character. Right. And I would imagine he's probably a teenager, right? In this story. Am I wrong? Yeah. Yeah. I believe he is. Yes. What did I care? Fool that I was little by little. I burned. Maybe sometimes there might be a flaw, but how pretty the picture was back then. Yeah, I mean, it's just, like I said before, this is a great description of being in love with somebody. Like I said, especially someone you don't know. Mm-hmm. There might be a flaw. <laughs> I'm sure there is, right? Mm-hmm. But he's just like, his, the rose-colored glasses are on. He just sees everything the way he wants it to be seen. Right. What did I do, fool that I was, to profit from youthful mistakes? <laughs> It's shameful to tell how often I fell in love with illusions again. And this is where I think the line's talking about the next two songs. Right. Seven Cities of Gold and The Wreckers. Mm-hmm. Because he also, he does believe still that, that um, things are going to work out. Promises will be kept. People are inherently good. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't offer help unless they wanted to actually help you as opposed to steal from you. And Alex here... Does a mandolin solo, does he not? Is that a mandolin he's playing? I didn't know what that was. I think it's a mandolin. You know, I meant to watch the live video of them performing this live to remember what he was playing. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure it was a mandolin. But if it's not, it's it's a different stringed instrument than a guitar, I believe. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. But, you know, it's also it's such a great instrument to use in this type of song. It mm-hmm. does have a, a very romantic feel to it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then the song ends, again, Getty beautifully singing, a goddess with wings on her heels. Yeah. But then we have seven cities of gold. (laughs) We sure do. (laughs) And that is track seven on Clockwork Angels. get into the quotes and everything jared that is quite a transition from halo effect to seven cities of gold as we said we were talking to lex about our favorite bass lines yeah nasty ass bass line nasty nasty bass line totally and you know i don't have the 
LP. Where would this fall on the LP? Would this be the opening song on side two? It would have to be. Right? I don't have the LP, but just counting songs, it's song seven, and I don't really count BU2B2 as a full song. It's only a minute long, minute and a half. Right. So I think time-wise, it should be. Because Halo Effect is a great side one ender. And unless it was a, unless it would be a double album, but you know what I mean? Like, you know, and I was just going to say that the length of all these songs, I bet you they had to put it on two albums. Yeah. But still, I guess what I mean is that halo effect is the, is the great ending to Mm -hmm. the first part of the album, because in the story, this is where he, you know, takes off to find someplace else. You know what I mean? So it's definitely the crux of the storyline. One of the definite plot points is, when he leaves to find the, the seven cities of gold. And it's just such a great, this is such a great album side opener. Absolutely. Because of that baseline. Oh yeah. So I've got a quote from Alex, seven cities of gold. So we got into this one. It started in the pre-studio writing stage, right when we were catching up and reviewing things at Ged's place. We had some songs, but we wanted to get a few more things written before going into the studio in October. We spent the first week just drinking coffee and throwing the idea around that maybe we weren't ready to record. I remember we went downstairs and didn't do anything for a couple of days. And then we had what we call our good six minutes. That's all you need, a good six minutes a day. From there, the song took off. We started with the whole feedback thing, which was pretty cool. The idea was to do something from the hip and get really snarky and strident. It's also very cinematic. You hear the danger of the big city as our traveler approaches. Then when Neil comes in and we break out the riff, you're there. You're in the city with all of its excitement and opportunity and trouble. The song has a swagger to it. Turned out exactly as I envisioned. I love the ending, the guitar squealing and spitting as you leave the city. Yeah, this song it's crazy good. This is a crazy good song. Yeah. You had said to me, this is your favorite song on the album. Is that true? It definitely is. It, I think I vacillate between this and um, Headlong Flight. I definitely mm-hmm. bounce between this song and Headlong Flight. Everything about this song is just great. <laughs> the riff is great. The intro is great. Like, like, like you just read in that quote. The outro is great. Mm-hmm. Just the, the tone of the entire thing. Everything about this song is amazing. I've got more quotes, Jared. Nick. Oh, yeah, let's hear him. Nick Rasgulenitz told Music Radar, there's a lot going on. So as a producer, I want to make sure that we don't lose the song. I love the way it builds up coming out of this chaotic funk. And then you have Neil just slamming. It makes me want to drive fast. We created a lot of spacey stuff in the middle section. And for his solo, Alex played live off the floor. We put him out in the room with his headphones on. And he was right in front of the amp. We wanted to get the screaming feedback coming at him. I think he nailed it in one take. Oh, God. I'm so privileged to have witnessed it and many moments like it. Man. Can you imagine being in the room for that? <laughs> no. It's like a magic trick being performed in front of you, only the magic is real, right? Ugh, unbelievable. It's insane. I, there's so many different stories of that, right? Oh, yeah. He nailed it in one take. (laughs) It's amazing. Oh, boy. And and before we get into the lyrics, I've got more. Oh, okay. Neil, this is from Rolling Stone. The seven cities of gold always fascinated me. 
Southwestern U.S. history especially fascinates me. The whole spur of the Spanish exploration of the Southwestern U.S. was the search for these mythical seven cities of gold. The Spanish ones would go back to Mexico City and say, I saw it, I saw it, I just couldn't get to it. But I could mm-hmm. see this city of gold in the distance. They kept believing it and sending expeditions. Yep. That's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. I mean, it's the, the, the search for gold is the, the, one of the worst <laughs> things in human history. The terrible, terrible things people have done for gold. But, um, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of stories about just cities made of gold. Like El Dorado is another one. Yeah. And do you think a part of it was a mirage? I mean, if you see the if you see the artwork that that was done yeah. in the album, it looks like like a mirage in the distance. If you're in the desert, oh yeah, and that's that seems to be what Hugh Syme depicted in that photo or that uh, piece of artwork, I should say, kind of a golden mirage in the distance. Yeah, absolutely. And people will come back with any kind of wacky story, right? Yeah, I saw the city. <laughs> I saw it. In the distance. I just couldn't get to it. <laughs> yeah. I kept walking and I never got there. And I never got there. What's up with that? That's crazy. <laughs> it's almost as if it doesn't exist. <laughs> so here's what Neil says in the liner notes of Clockwork Angels. The legend mm-hmm. had passed down for generations far across the Western Sea where the steamliners could not fly, lay a wilderness land hiding seven cities of gold. I dared the crossing on one of the stout ships that followed the trade route to Poseidon, a tough port city. I worked there for a while on the steam liners that served the alchemy mines, then eventually set out into the Red Rock Desert. The stones were sculpted into unearthly monuments, and the country grew cold as I traveled north in search of the famous city of gold, Cabola. Its name had sounded in my dreams since childhood. So, you know, the seven cities of gold is an actual mythical yeah legendary thing Mm -hmm. it wasn't just made up for this right for this song so that's really cool too that he brought a real i'm putting i have i have my air quotes on Mm -hmm. a real thing into this song because it's such a great idea right yeah that there's just this this place that once existed where people just made crap out of gold (laughs) it was just all over the place it's just the place that you would go to and be like okay this is heaven yep but of course, it's, it's not really there. Should we get to the lyrics a little bit? Yeah, let's do it. A man can lose his past in a country like this. Wandering aimless, parched and nameless. A man could lose his way in a country like this. Canyons and cactus, endless and trackless. <laughs> I love that. I know. And already we get the idea that this guy, that Owen, is, you know, going to be on the verge of hallucination any second now, right? Yeah. Because he's traveling in this this very harsh environment, parched and nameless. Yeah. And I know we were talking about this last episode on, what song was it? The Anarchist. Getty just sounded angry. Yeah. And here he's almost got that lost sort of tone in his voice, (laughs) right? He does, right. Which is amazing that he can pull that off. Yeah, I know. He's acting. He's really acting on this album. He really is. He really is. Searching through a grim eternity, sculpted by a prehistoric sea. (laughs) Which is also, you know, probably true in a lot of those places. 
Yeah. So then we get to the, uh, the chorus, Seven Cities of Gold, Stories That Fired My Imagination. Seven Cities of Gold, A Splendid Mirage in This Desolation. Yep. Which is what we were just talking about. It could yeah, very well have just been a mirage. Right. And most likely was. Yeah. But, you know, it's also just something that people can dream of. People need dreams, right? Right. And I think that harkens back to the religious thing we were talking about a couple episodes ago, too. People want something to believe in. Right. Whether it be a god or a city of gold or something to aspire to. Right. Some reason for living. Right. Right. Sort of like the Fountain of Lemneth, right? We had a discussion at the end of the Fountain of Lemneth yeah. about whether or not he dies at the end or whether or not he goes on to something else because he found this thing that isn't mm-hmm. really as cool as he thought it was going to be. Yeah. <laughs> I think I came down on the side is that he, he doesn't, that he keeps on going and you came down on the side that where he dies. But the idea that, you know, it's the, it's the dream that gives life its meaning, not necessarily finding that dream. Right. Right. And I love, like I said before, I love the fact that we can tie clockwork angels to caress of steel that way. Yeah. Really is amazing. Seven cities of gold glowing in my dreams like hallucinations, glitter in the sun like a revelation, distant as a comet or a constellation. That's far. That is pretty far. <laughs> Just as brilliant, though. I mean, so, yeah, so I mean, basically he's admitting that, that it's not really there. Yeah. But it doesn't, it, at some point, it doesn't matter that it's not there. I think in the book, he goes and he doesn't find it. And when he comes back, he just tells people that it was there. <laughs> right. Right. Because that's the most important thing is to have the story to tell. And that's just what Neil was talking about. I saw right. it. I saw it. He came back he told everyone it was there and it starts the circle again because somebody else is going to go out looking for it. Right. And it would be like, no one, probably no one would believe you if you came back and said, right, it wasn't there. I mean, like, Hey, you're probably looking in the wrong place, man. No one wants to admit that they didn't find it. Yeah. Oh, of course I found it. It's beautiful. <laughs> You should see it. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. And the music in this section is just fantastic. I, I know I say fantastic too much, but you can't really say fantastic too much when it comes to Rush. No. Yeah, this, this song is just amazing from second one to the end. Like Alex was saying, you can really feel Owen traveling to this destination. Of course, right. he never gets there, but but you can feel, feel him moving towards it. Yeah. And definitely the, the atmospheric quality of the, of the guitar mm-hmm. can be a little hallucinogenic yes. in places. Yes. And again, Getty's vocals match it perfectly. Yep. A man can lose himself in a country like this, rewrite the story, recapture the glory, which is pretty much what you were just saying. Rewrite the story. Yeah. He tells the story that didn't really happen. Right. And he gets the glory. Mm -hmm. A man could lose his life in a country like this. Sun blind and friendless, frozen and endless. (laughs) Sun blind. Now that's something I've never heard before. I've heard snow blind. Yeah. I've never heard sun blind. Well, it happens to me every other night on route 80 with the, uh, (laughs) the sun setting while I'm driving home. If you're in New Jersey, you know what I'm talking about. Can't see a thing. Yeah, it's true. But you're right, I've never heard it stated that way. Yeah, I love that, though. The nights grow longer the farther I go. 
wake to aching cold in a deep Sahara of snow. So the further he goes, colder it gets. Yeah. I'm assuming he's climbing mountains of some kind, right? Yeah. And the less he finds. Yeah. That gleam in the distance could be heaven's gate, a long-awaited treasure at the end of my cruel fate. Right. Could be heaven's gate. Yeah. It might not even be the, the seven cities of gold. It could be the could be heaven's gate or it could be a reference to the fact that he feels like he's going to die because <laughs> he's just been out there in the wilderness for so long really is incredible and you know as alex said another great ending the guitar squealing as you leave the city very cinematic yeah absolutely such a great song you don't think we're gushing too much about this record jar nope people aren't going to listen to this and say you know these guys come on it can't be that good no if they did, I, I would, we would have words. <laughs> There'd be words. <laughs> well, let's see if we have words about track eight on Clockwork Angels, Jar. It is the records. The breakers roar on an unseen shore. This song to me is the most fascinating song on the record. Why? Because I found out something that I had no idea occurred, and I think it's just incredible. Ready for this? Yeah. Alex, again from the Music Radar interview. Ged and I traded instruments during the writing, but when we went to record, we went back to our own instruments. We were both influenced by each other's writing, which I think is a great testament to how we work was a very pleasant, productive experience. How amazing is that? Getty wrote the guitar parts, and Alex wrote the bass parts for this song. That is incredible. You didn't know that either, right? I didn't know that. When I first heard this song, I thought to myself, this is a very unusual-sounding Rush song. It doesn't sound like any other Rush song, I think. Do you agree? Yeah, what is that? Well, what about it when you first heard it? Made you think that, though? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's very poppy. It's very catchy. And I'm not sure that's the thing I was thinking. But I think this explains it. Yeah, the guitar is a little jangly, right? Right. Alex didn't write the guitar part. Right. And Getty didn't write the bass part. Hmm. That is interesting. I think it's amazing. It is amazing. It really is. I don't know about you, but I'd be nervous to play guitar in front of Alex or bass in front of Getty. <laughs> right? You're changing instruments. Yeah, but I mean, you, you can, when you, when you listen to the song, after I knew that and I listened back, Alex's guitar part isn't very complicated and Getty's bass part isn't very complicated. And I think it's probably because the other guy wrote it. Right. 
So now I'm at a disadvantage. I have to go back and listen to it now with that in mind. I think you'll have a different, a different feeling for it. Here's more from Alex. It's interesting because it was a struggle to get the verses to sit. The acoustics were too sweet. They didn't feel right. There was a contrast that didn't feel broad enough. So after a lot of hard work, we came up with the quick strumming and put the harmonics in, and that created a beautiful moment. This is contrasted by the sound of a danger signal. Don't accept everything at face value. Be careful. Things that might look good could turn out to be the exact opposite. There's a middle section where all the damage is done. I'm trying to explain it without getting into the whole story. Once we got the strings and the bass pedals down, it all became such a visual moment in the song. And uh, he, he reiterates pretty much just what I said. The records has a real pop feel. It's not too heavy, but it's emotionally tied to a strong rock presence. The verses are some of my favorite Rush moments ever. How about that? Yeah, well, I'm going to have to agree with him on that one. I love the chorus of this song. Yeah, it's so catchy and it sticks in your head, right? Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of a song from the previous record, The Larger Bowl, which is another one that's catchy and just gets you singing along with it. Right. Which I love. So Nick Raskulenitz, here's a quote from him. The song didn't exist until we were in the studio. There was no demo of it. Getty was in the writing room playing guitar. Alex came in and picked up the bass. So the song was written with the two of them playing what aren't their main instruments. It's probably what gives it such a different feel. I tried to get the two of them to switch for the recording. Oh, boy. Alex on bass and Getty on guitar, but they decided to stick to their designated instruments. (laughs) How great would that have been? That would have been crazy, right? (laughs) And I just love the fact that Nick was just trying to get them to do everything. (laughs) Hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? You know? How crazy would it have been to see them do that in in concert? Oh. Switch instruments, right? That would have been that would have been really great. It would have been really yeah. great. So why don't why don't I read what Neil wrote in the liner notes and let's get into the lyrics, shall we? Yep. Narrowly escaping a frozen death in that desert, I made my way back to Poseidon and found a berth on a homeward ship, caught in a terrible storm. We seemed to find salvation on an unexpected signal light. Steering toward it, we soon learned it was false, placed by the denizens to lure ships to their doom on the jagged reefs. They plundered the cargoes and abandoned the crews and passengers to the icy waves. Wow. Yeah. There's also one other line. I was the only survivor. Right. So I don't know if this was a real thing. Do you know if this has actually happened in history? Oh, I'm sure, you know, pirates plundering other ships. Yeah, sure. Pretending to be. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't, ha- I don't have any factual proof of it, but I, I mean, how could, it, how could it not have happened? <laughs> given, given the history of human beings, it's probably happened, right? Yeah, it probably happened yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So anyway, yeah, you're right. I was the only survivor. And that pretty much explains the song, right? Yep. A lot of these songs, like I said, I think last time, they're pretty self-explanatory as songs. Do you know what I mean? Like they right. just, they're following the story. But there are a lot of little gems. There's a couple of gems in this one. Right. I mean, overall, there's not a lot of deep meaning, but here and there, Neil throws something cool in there. Yeah, definitely. 
The breakers roar on an unseen shore. In the teeth of a hurricane, we struggle in vain. A hellish night, a ghostly light, it's the light Neil was talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Peers through the driving rain. Salvation in a human chain. Now, do you think that means they were trying to save each other by forming a human chain in the water? Yeah, I think that's how they were rescued, quote unquote, you know, by the people on the other ship or that. Right. On the, that were showing the light. That's how Owen was rescued. Yeah. They just formed a, a human chain, everybody holding onto each other, and they were kind of dragged over to safety. Mm-hmm. Well, the illusion of safety. Right. <laughs> what they thought was safety. And Getty, again, the vocals on this song really capture the emotion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like he's on the boat. Yeah. I'm telling you, he's acting, man. Genius. And it's incredible acting. It really is. It really is. His, his emotions change from song to song. Yeah. And the vocals change from song to song, and it's just brilliant. Especially a song like this. If they, like, they didn't even have, did you say they didn't even have a demo for this song? That's what Nick said, yeah. Yeah, so they just came up with it in the studio. That, first of all, that's insanity, right? Yeah. <laughs> it seems insane to trust yourself enough to go into the studio and be like, oh, yeah, I guess we'll have to write this song today. And then to do it on something that's not your main instrument. And then we get to what probably is the most catchy chorus of any Rush song, or arguably one of the most catchy choruses. All I know is that sometimes you have to be wary of a miracle too good to be true. Let's take this piece by piece, Jer. Yeah. What do you think of that? Well, yeah, it's true. But what else was they? What else were they supposed to do in the story? You know what I mean? Like he he certainly looks at it, you know, from a from a backward glance. Like, oh, yeah, I guess it was a little too fortunate that we stumbled upon people who just could save us while we are in the middle of this hurricane. But what else are they going to do? That's hindsight. Right. Do you know what I mean? Do you think he was talking about the seven cities of gold there or the rescue? I think he could be. His problem, I would think he's talking about the rescue, but definitely applicable to some of the other songs. Right. Just like Halo Effect mm-hmm. is talking about Seven Cities of Gold and the Wreckers, this one, that line talks about a lot of things. You know, sometimes it's, it's just a miracle too good to be true, which of course might just be another dig at religion in general, right? Right. I mean, th- this could harken back to any prior song on this record, really. Right. All I know is that sometimes the truth is contrary. Everything in life you thought you knew. Everything the watchmaker said, perhaps. Yeah, sometimes the truth is... I just like how uh, Getty says contrary. He says yeah. contrary. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's just like a meter thing, so it sounds better. But it's just, it's so, it's such an interesting way to be like, I wonder if he was in the studio, it's like singing contrary. And just was like, that's not really working for me. I'm just going to say contrary. It doesn't rhyme with wary then, right? Right, right. Exactly. The way he sings it is perfect. Right. But it's also, it's true, you know, sometimes the truth is contrary to everything in life you thought you knew. I guess the, the real skill is trying to figure out when that is. Mm-hmm. It's applicable to our actual lives. When can you recognize something being true as opposed to what you think it should be or what do you think it is? It depends. Right. If you come up against something that's contrary to what you 
believe? How do you recognize the truth? Depends on what we're talking about. I don't have an answer for it either. Yeah. All I know is that sometimes you have to be wary because sometimes the target is you. <laughs> right. Whenever I hear this song, I think of, I always think of Between the Wheels. Really? Right. Yeah. Because there's a, the one line in there. It's like, uh, you know how the rabbit feels going under your speeding wheels, bright images flashing by like windshields towards the mm -hmm. fly. You know, sometimes you're the fly and sometimes you're the windshield. You know, sometimes you're the target. Right. Of things. It's just an interesting way to think about it. He's, he's coming to grips with the fact, as a character, he's coming to grips with the fact that sometimes people are out to get you for no good reason whatsoever. Right? This is something that the watchmaker is not involved in. Right. These are people living outside of the watchmaker's control. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be everybody who lives outside of the watchmaker's control is out to harm somebody. Right. <laughs> Except for the people in the circus. It seems like everybody else is just out to pick your pocket or to, you know, rescue you and then take everything that you have and leave you for dead. My interpretation of this song is the verses are describing what's happening to Owen at this time with, with yeah. the shipwreck, right? And the, the choruses are kind of his life flashing before his eyes. He thought he was going to die here. Yeah, that's true. And these are the things he's thinking as as this ship is being battered and he's in the water and he doesn't know if he's going to live or die. Right. These are the thoughts that are racing through his head. That's the way I see it. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And it's definitely stuff that informs him as a character later on. Mm -hmm. Like he's, he's going to learn this lesson. Oh yeah. And if he lives through this, uh, he's going to be a different person when he comes out of it. Yeah, absolutely. So we get to verse two, driven aground with that awful sound. Drowned by the cheer from ashore, we wonder what for. The people swarm through the darkling storm, gather everything they can score, till their backs won't bear anymore. Pirates. Yeah, pirates just taking everything. Yep. Ship breaks up on the on the rocks, and uh, there are just people there. Just they leave Owen and his his shipmates to drown, mm -hmm. and they take all the stuff they can find. Wow. Scavengers. Scavengers. And then, then, of course, we get to the chorus again, and, we, and the chorus is the same each time. Yeah. But then we get to a part that's, I guess it's a bridge? Yes, I would call it a bridge. Okay. The breakers roar on an unseen shore in the teeth of an icy grave. Lots of strings in this section, too, right? Yeah. The human chain leaves a bloody stain washed away in the pounding waves. It's a sad image for sure. Yeah, totally a sad image. And the strings definitely bring that sadness out. Oh yeah. Such a, such a finely constructed song. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I just want to say before we, we finish up with the lyrics, there's not a traditional solo in this song as well. And again, no. not needed, right? Nope. Not needed at all. And the last line is part of the chorus, but different words this time. All I know is that a memory can be too much to carry, striking down like a bolt from the blue. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty. <laughs> that's heavy, man. <laughs> yeah, that's very heavy. <laughs> memory can be too much to carry. It, it may, of course, it makes you think about Neil. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, 
you know, just the memories of, of the people who have lost. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess that's what Owen is feeling at this point too, right? He lives and he's got to carry the memory of being the only survivor of this right. terrible, terrible wreck. Survivor's guilt. Yeah, and it weighs on him heavily. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it would weigh on anyone, I would think. That's true. And striking down like a bolt from the blue just kind of shows the randomness mm-hmm. of some, some of these violent acts that befall people. And again, great image by Hugh Syme in the, yeah. the album notes. You can see the ship breaking apart. Mm-hmm. That'd be a tough sea to be uh, lost in right there. Yeah. You know, every time I go out on the ocean on a boat, I cannot imagine sailing in like the 1800s or something. <laughs> just kind of Isn't that crazy? Going out. It's absolutely the most insane thing anybody could do. And plus, you know, you leave on this boat and you come back or you don't in a couple of years. <laughs> Everybody you know is just like, oh, they're due back any day now. <laughs> or you never come back. Or you never come back and you just never know what happened to somebody. The settlers of the new world, right? Yeah. How badly did they, did they want to get out of where they were, that they were willing to risk their lives like that? Yeah, it's true. It's crazy. Yeah. I can't even imagine it. No. I'm, I wouldn't do something like that. I don't even want to drive across the highway. <laughs> <laughs> it takes you forever to get into the exit lane, right? So now you've got some homework, Jerry. You've got to go back and listen to the records yeah. with this new information and say, whoa, wait a minute. Yeah, right. Now I get it. This is probably the only homework I'll ever enjoy in my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) So overall, these three songs, just a great grouping of tracks by Rush, I think. Yeah. And again, you know, they work as individual songs, Mm -hmm. but they work together to move the story along. Yep. Telling you, man, this, this album is brilliant. And I have to say that I think our last episode that we're going to do on this album might be the most exciting one of the four because we're going to talk about headlong flight and we're going to talk about the garden. Right. And wish them well. Don't forget that. That's true. But, (laughs) but, but let's be honest. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. Headlong flight and the garden are, are truly two of the best songs on this record. Right. I know. Standouts. Standouts. So before we wrap things up, Jar, I wanted to mention, I've got, I've got some news. It's a little late because we're, of course, recording this a few weeks in advance, but we've been talking about this for a couple of years now. We've been doing the podcast for a couple of years. We've been talking about this since we started the podcast or since right after Neil passed, unfortunately. A night for Neil. The Neil Peart Memorial Celebration has been moved yet again. Yep, I know. Rescheduled to April 23rd, 2022, at the Meridian Center in St. Catharines. Now, we have our tickets. This is, what, the fourth time they've rescheduled it? Yeah, possibly. I wasn't keeping track. And it's the fourth time I've changed our hotel reservations, Jar. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Yeah, I guess that's true. But when I was on the Meridian Center website, I saw confirmed artists for the event. Are you aware of this? No, I'm not aware of this. Well, this is just episodes chock full of things I wasn't aware of. Chock full of things you were not aware of. David Barrett, who, if you recall, Jer, Jacob Moon told us about. He performed with Jacob Moon on Time Stand Still, the video that we saw. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. So he's going to be performing. And 
Jacob Moon is going to be performing. Yeah, that's going to be cool. That's going to be very cool. The Deva Quartet, which is an electric string quartet, they're known for their cover of 2112. Have you seen this? I don't think so. It's really, really good. They do the whole thing. They do the whole thing. Okay. We should have covered that for our covers episode, but we didn't. Next time, maybe. Next time we can do it. Also, Brandon Dyke, who we've had on our podcast. Yeah. Old friends. Old friends. Rush tribute band Solar Federation and Permanent Waves. That's cool. And Fleesh. Oh. We've talked about them on the podcast before, too, and they're great. Yeah, absolutely. More artists and special guests will be announced once the rescheduled tour dates are confirmed. So there's some news. Yeah, excellent. Rare news on something for nothing. <laughs> Coming a few weeks later than you probably already learned it. Well, what did, what did you say last time we talked about news? You said it was like the newspaper back in the 1700s or something. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Comes like a month late. <laughs> On the ship. Right, exactly. Exactly. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram, we are at The Rushcast. Email Jerry, therushcast at gmail.com. Let him know what you thought of our conversation about part three of Clockwork Angels. The bass intro and outro was Lex. He's great. Subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast app. And Jer, let's have a great quote to wrap this up. What do you think? All right. All I know is that memory can be too much to carry, striking down like a bolt from the blue. Yes, indeed. Thanks, Jer. See you later, Steve. Have a good one. <laughs>